John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1120.EX3816, certificate number 29379, C-Silk. I know that you're not a clothes horse, but increasingly interested in clothes. I think you're... Am I, am I wrong that your wife still dresses you for the most part? You are, well, that's not true. Hmm. The last time you saw me, that uh, Banana Republic Henley I was wearing, yep. that was Mindy Special. Yeah. I think she was uh, a Mindy at Special. or adjacent to Banana Republic. <laughs> that's, that's what I gather from that. Do you have a special garment? Either one that you think of as uh, worn only at special times or one that you think of as your most expensive item of clothing? I feel like most of my nice items of clothing are kind of like office wear that I don't have much call to wear. Oh, because you because I work from home. But you have it from back in yeah, back when well, you worked I, in an office. Or no, just when I had to be on TV or something, oh, I and I need I needed a nice suit or a nice jacket. Do you have a ceremonial garment that is a special only? I have a uh, I have a short sleeve button up kind of beach shirt that looks like something. Carl Wilson might have worn in 1967. Yeah. And I took it from my grandpa's closet after he died. Like, not not like seconds after. Yeah. But like... <laughs> Grandpa's dead. Quick! <laughs> Gotta go. <laughs> you, you block off the closet. I'm going to get the Beach Boys shirt. No, it was just like, hey, if you want to remember anything. And I grabbed this one button-down shirt. That you thought of as his? Or you were no, just like... Just, I was just like, hey, this is actually kind of a nice shirt. I'll get I, one I, thing. I, I would wear this. So it has some sentimental uh, attachment. Do you have a like a T-shirt that reminds you of the of your college years that you still have to work out in? I have a really uh-huh. I have a really old Universidad de Madrid uh, sweatshirt I I bought. You know, it's some probably some souvenir store in Madrid somewhere. Right, like in the early nineties. That's now kind of faded and peeling, but you know, a beat up gray sweatshirt will last past the apocalypse. I'm sure, sure. we're talking to people who are living in houses made of our we could be of our abandoned hoodies. Talking about uh, we could be talking to sentient hoodies. You probably sleep in my hoodie, mm. like like we've just broken up and you you miss the smell of me. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's a priestly garment that only the <laughs> only the priests wear. They put it on the the sacrifice right before they right before they cut a pentagram into her. Um, 
I have a, I have like a, a velvet jacket I like, but it's just like Zara. Yeah, it's I've just seen fast that. fashion. I've seen that. You're velvet not impressed. Jacket. I assume you want me to ask you what your cool no. rare ob- object de... What's the opposite of object art, but for clothes? An object of... The the fashion, the the, uh, couture, yeah, the couture, objet de couture. No, uh, because it's a it's it's an impossible question because I put so much uh, significance in old clothes and the 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 warp and it's sad because because we outlive our all our clothes all the time. Yeah, maybe I assume it's just because I have modern badly made clothing. Yeah, but I I will love a t shirt and. 18 months later, it'll have little holes by the collar and underarms, and, and out it goes. Out it goes, right. And I think that's And what, I love that Chex Mix t-shirt. That's what I love about it, is that stuff is made so well out of such amazing uh, fabric that it does. it has survived one or two generations of wearer before it even gets to me. There's a photograph I, I have of uh, Charlie Chaplin being... Uh, appearing kind of on Wall Street to a huge group of people, and he's there... Not in costume, but in a regular suit. Just a guy. Just giving a speech or, or, or you know, it's one of those, like... This was a common thing on Wall Street in the 30s. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin would come by and everybody, and he'd ring the bell. <laughs> but in this case, he's being held aloft um, what? by another famous person of the 20s. Uh, and I'm not sure, I don't, I don't, the picture is such an iconic one to me, but I don't actually know the story. It might be Charles Lindbergh. Who knows who it is? <laughs> a rare picture of Charles Lindbergh holding Charlie Chaplin. But, uh, but Chaplin is holding an arm up in the air. He's kind of, you know, he's receiving the adulation of the crowd. But what strikes me is how well tailored his suit jacket is. It, you know, anybody now in that, in a similar posture, wearing a suit, being held up by Charles Lindbergh with one arm in the air, you would just be able to see the kind of off the rackness of, of the cut of the suit, unless they had a $6,000 custom suit on. You would just see the kind of gaps and the way it was pulling. And I don't think I would. Right, right. It is a special kind like you, of you immediately see. Skill. Wow, look how that look how that's draping. Yeah, and you there it would be bunching up there, but it's not. Yeah, his jacket is so expertly tailored, and it comes from a time when clothes were custom made and, and if, tailored if Charles, by people. If Charles Lindbergh were to come out of his grave and come just lift me up right now. Like I'm wearing this Uniqlo shirt, and it would probably bunch up all funny. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm not ready for this. Your your shoulders would be there'd be all this extra fabric up there, but also you know it wouldn't fit under the arms. That it would pull up. The the buttons would pull. I'd be like Zombie Lindbergh. No, this is off the rack. <laughs> and the problem is that I can't afford a six thousand dollars suit. Like I'm not. That is the problem. Yeah, I'm not one <laughs> of the many problems. No, no, that's it. <laughs> People say America has troubles today, but the number one problem is that you, John, John Roderick, cannot have his clothes tailored. Then it's coronavirus. So I am not particularly well tailored, right? My clothes don't fit especially well. Most of them are are found items. I appreciate the I appreciate their provenance and their and the fact that they are well tailored, but they were tailored for someone else. Do you think most people just would look a lot better? In, oh, even. A thousand percent. Because most people don't know. They no. put on a shirt and they're like, yeah, this is a large. This fits. And most people didn't know. But I think uh, I think now we just think, are the sleeves long enough? Is it long enough? 
if I'm going to button the collar all the way, does it button? If I bend over to pick something up, do, does anybody see any part of my butt crack? And it's the rare kind. I mean, it is an affectation or it is a set of skills and knowledge that you don't need. It is a, it is now, I mean, you, you, you can be a billionaire and show up at dinner in a hoodie. The fact that the hoodie is made out of alpaca doesn't register with 90% of the people. There just isn't that, there isn't, it isn't the signifier it once was. I have a problem where I enjoy when people are dressed well and looking good. I'm like, wow, I admire that. Yeah. And yet if I were to try to do that to the same event, I'd be like, why am I, why am I wearing these fancy clothes to this? Yeah. Like, I feel like somehow I don't deserve or am, am a bad receptacle for that, uh, concentrated fashion people that are interested in that stuff often try to have a party where they they try to it's it's like we were just discussing cars and coffee where um people that own nice cars just have events to bring their cars to because none of their friends or family appreciate the car that's true of all hobbies really the the secret of conventions is that everyone else is sick of your comic books or or (laughs) or your cars or your gardening or whatever yeah if you have a train set you can only invite so many neighbors over. I mean, once they've seen your train set, most of them don't want to see it a second time. So you have to go to one of those train set conventions where... It seems like a very personal story for you. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of the people that goes to train set conventions and watches the old men that are dressed in overalls with stripy hats. And I just envy them so much because they just stopped caring a long time ago. But they want to, they want to find like-minded people who appreciate what yeah. they do. Choo-choo. And there's a thing like this for clothes? Well, you know, I just think that clothesy people throw, will will either try to go to events or try to throw parties themselves where there's a dress code. But the problem is that if you are into clothes, the chances that your uh, that your other friends are into clothes pretty it's pretty low if you're picking your friends for other reasons. If you're picking your friends because you like them and they're smarter, they're funny or whatever. But it's, I know. What if it's just somebody you, you met at Waistcoat Con yeah, 2018? And the chances are you're not going to – I mean, I, that was early on in my 20s. I tried to socialize with mods because they dressed so well. And I wanted to – I thought that this would this was my this could have been my subculture. Mods. What's the downside? We're gonna ride Vespas, we're gonna wear, you know, like thin lapel jackets, we're gonna look super cool. Uh, the problem is that mods are dull. And uh, you know, all they want to talk about is they can't all be dull. (laughs) Not all of them, but if you go to a mod party, I mean it's one of the things they're vain. And so you're Uh. you're there and you're in a nice I, I assume outfit. mods would have the same bell curve of interestingness uh, as everyone else, but you're I saying no. I suppose they do, but... You're that, saying modness self-selects the for, pro- for dullness. I think, I think fashion self-selects for dullness to a certain extent, unless you get into it philosophically. Like you. I don't even know if I am into it. I guess, I guess I'm into the story more than I am into the look. The autobiographical story of how you found the thing? No, the story of the garment and what's interesting about it in the first place. Like it has to have been worn by William McKinley the day he was shot or something. I mean, that would be a wonderful thing to own. Not if it has a hole in it. You know, I'm not, I don't have a particularly, I don't have a build that, uh, that looks elegant in any garment. In a $6,000 suit, I would look like I, I fell asleep on a bus and woke up at the end of the line, uh, because that's just how I'm built. I'm just a, I have a kind of, or, or maybe it's just how I am, like, you think it's posture? <laughs> disheveled, right? I can dishevel any garment. 
Uh, like Big Ben. That's right. Remember the strip where they put the new outfit on him and like three <laughs> panels later, he's got the, the cloud again? I had a good friend uh, in high school that he he could put on a suit off the rack. He looked amazing in it. And at the end of the day, he looked amazing in it. And at the end of the day, I look like I swam in a... I swam across a, a sea in it. Isn't that just being handsome? I think like I, every time I see a picture of some jacket or something, I'm like, wow, look how good that guy looks. Oh, wait, he's handsome. He's like 29 and it has extraordinary uh, jawline. That is, that I, is I am not 29 and I do not have an extraordinary jawline. But part of l- loving the story of this stuff is learning to love tailoring as a art Learning to love fabric as a creation. You can tell this stuff. You can be like, look at the stitching on this. Only because I was interested in it enough to study it. Just like you and I know anything. I mean, when people ask me, how did you know that? Which I'm sure you get all the time. How did you know that? You say something just offhand, like, oh, well, that's blah, blah, blah. How did you know that? I I, I do tend to know, by the way. I do tend to remember where I learned stuff and people are skeptical. You remember where you learned it, but the question of why you learned That's it true. <laughs> is extremely hard to answer, right? How do you That's know That's a therapy that? question. Why do you know that? And uh, yes, there, there was a guy that posted, he, he has some Instagram account about Seattle architecture and Lord knows why this person does it because they routinely get the story wrong. And they posted something on Instagram that was like, this building is at the corner of Rainier and Dearborn. And, uh, and, and that's the whole point of this Instagram account. And I commented on it and was like, I think that building is not on the corner of Rainier and Dearborn. And the person was offended that I had corrected them and, and pushed back. Nope, afraid not. And then, like a couple of days later wrote me and said, it turns out you were right. And I was like, yeah, I know I was right. <laughs> and he said, how did you know that? And it was an unanswerable question. Like, how did I know it? Because I saw it and I n- n- knew it. But I don't know how I, I don't know why I, why that is a thing that I chose to know. But how, how do you know like this kind of tonsorial stuff? Wait, is that the right word or is tonsorial Sartorial. hair? Sartorial. Sartorial. Tonsorial is hair? Or ton- tonsils. Tonsorial, tonsorial is... means related to the throat. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> no. What, no, what is tonsorial? Look it up. I think tonsorial might be hair. Hair? Is that right? Yes. Related to hairdressing. So sartorial stuff like this. Wait, or is, isn't sartorial sartorial clothes? Yeah, sartorial is clothes. So uh, how would I know, like, oh, that's good stitching, though this is a cheap piece of crap. Like, what what, what avenues are there for me to come to that knowledge? Do you, do you just kind of sense it? Is it like somebody who is, like, looking at baby chicks and it's like male, female, male? Intuitively, you know, but you can't explain why? I think it begins with, uh, with just the... Uh, anyone who is interacting with the culture, up until recently, I think, you know, fashion used to be a thing that from season to season... Uh, what was considered stylish changed dramatically. Yes. And fashion was a thing that, um, that actually like worked as a revolutionary social mover, um, particularly in the 20th century. It was an element of women's rights. It was an element of a lot of different kinds of emancipation. You can put on the clothes of your oppressor, and especially if you've just murdered him, disempower him or them, right? I mean, it's part of why preppy clothes are so 
became so ubiquitous because the initial adoption of preppy clothes was it was a kind of usurpation of what were the clothes the, the secret encoded clothes of the dominant of privilege yeah, yeah. um but but no, but no one had to teach you well it, it's uh like anything where you develop an affection for a topic you pursue you, you have an avidity for it that's that's just sort of a following of trails right you find a you find a uh, a thread and that's what our topic is nominally about today but you 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 follow a thread not a literal thread Off, often is this how you find a jacket you find a thread and you, you follow it thread, back to the rack you and follow it and there there is the jacket i love i love going to thrift stores and very quickly within uh, a thrift store context at least you have to learn to narrow uh, narrow your selection because you look at a rack it has 600 blue jackets on it and uh, to be there and to be interested in buying a blue jacket and just sorting, picking out uh, one, you start to distinguish between polyester and wool. You start to distinguish between cut and uh, fit. And if you're, you know, if thrifting is part of a, if you have an avidity for it, if it's a, if it's a place that you end up whiling away the hours uh, you do it because of, I think, you, certainly you're not doing it because you need clothing, right? You're doing it because... Because when I thrift, I am like, you know what I could use is a cool pair of loafers. But you don't oh. go very often. That's true. And I do it as a, as a manner of diversion. And partly it's because at some point I connected those garments to stories rather than to their functionality. And as I connected them to stories, I realized that nicer garments have more functionality just by virtue of, the, of their quality. Right, they're better looking. They they uh, withstand wear. The stories must be designer or manufacturer stories, right? Because you don't know what the owner's story. Well, no, unless because it's got postcards with, in the pocket with tailoring and with um, with fabric. I mean, if if it's a custom garment, like the the person that had it made chose that fabric, mm. Cho- made those choices about how they wanted their lapels to be cut, how they wanted the ja- the jacket to fit. And those are, those are elements that you can then make some, develop a supposition about the person and their time. And I think that is particularly interesting. This jacket was made in a time when fashion changed. And so you can, like buying an old globe and looking to see if Rhodesia is on it or, or you're, you know, trying to see whether there's a division in Germany you know, you do this. I know if you look at an old map, you immediately try to discern pin, its pin down how old it is. Yeah. And clothes can do the same thing. But you're looking at the sleeve or the collar. Yeah. And, and, uh, and to find a garment that has survived a hundred years, uh, there's, a, and in particular one that you can wear at a, a jacket that was made in 1905 that, that you can put on and wear out that no one else would know. I mean, it is a kind of, no one else would know except the one in a thousand that goes, tell me about your jacket. And I've had... Uh, that I, happens? I haven't had that many uh, uh, conversations with people like that, but it does. It does happen. It's sort of like sports... If you go to a Mariners game and you're wearing a throwback hat and you're a Super Mariners fan, people will come and say, come up and say, is that a real one? Yeah. Or did, it, or did you get it in the 90s at some throwback night? And is your throwback hat real? 
I have a fake throwback hat and I have a real throwback hat. I have one that was on some 90s like throwback night. Because I've seen your upside down Trident Mariners hat uh, and, I, and I don't know if I knew which, uh, which it was. But it is, but it is, a, it is a signal. Mm-hmm. Right? But there are, within the world of people that are making garments, the, within the world of people that are studying garments, you know, there are so many different things. And fabric is a major component, obviously, of any made garment. Really hard to hard to get one without it these days. <laughs> I want to wear one that's all thread. But fabric is a thing that communicates luxury to people who are certainly if you're wearing a garment made out of a luxurious fabric, your experience of that garment is very different, but also if you are if you are conscious of that stuff, it can communicate status, it can communicate well, I think I'm blind both ways. Yeah. Like even if I were wearing the thing, I'd be like, you know what? My cotton poly shirts feel nicer than this. <laughs> like the, like the uh, no iron shirt I have actually feels nicer than the silk one. <laughs> and some of it is fake, right? Some of it is status broadcasting yeah. that isn't really uh, connected to quality or, quality or, a, or a, an appreciation of luxury. It is very fashionable within San Francisco and Seattle tech billionaires to have uh to have very like regular looking clothes made out of extremely expensive fabrics so a hoodie or a t-shirt but it's made out of alpaca or you know in the in the craziest instances like there's wool that comes from a Tibetan antelope. Like a specific guy, one? Yeah. This is Greg, the Tibetan antelope. Uh, no, no, not, th- not that specific, but there <laughs> is a kind of Tibetan antelope that you can harvest its wool, and it's you know extraordinarily rare. And you could, if you wanted, have a T-shirt woven out of it and wear it under an alpaca hoodie and i can see a world where this stuff actually is a little nicer and even to a a dummy like me would subconsciously give off some vibe of look at that unusual and well-fitting garment yeah and i think to wear it is to is to marvel at its at both its its lightness its warmth or its breathability its durability maybe you smell like a tibetan antelope if it gets wet you probably do smell like an unwashed antelope but but those are signifiers that are meant only for a very narrow audience, right? If you are showing up in a t-shirt and a hoodie, you're you're trying to say, I'm a regular. I, I don't go in for all that. I'm suit not and tie. I'm not pretentious, yeah. but I am super wealthy. But I'm super wealthy. And this is a thing that no one else could possibly have. This t-shirt and and, and sweatshirt combination cost fifteen thousand dollars. Was that true of Steve Jobs' turtlenecks? Was there anything special about them or did he just wear regular jc penny i always think of them as just the most regular probably started out as cotton poly then ended up being nicer and i mean they were mock turtlenecks right i think he bought them at eddie bauer (laughs) yeah that's Uh, probably true but that but but that was also part of that's the henry rollins problem right you can become rich and famous and still imagine that your choice of your choice of sweatshirt or hotel or i mean bill gates drives a volvo right there's a little bit of reverse snobbery or reverse pretension. Well, the, the, you don't, there's no good option. Like right. whatever you drive will be 
a subject of comment because you're Bill Gates. I mean, pe- if he drove if he drove a Bentley, he would look ridiculous. People don't understand the degree to which just a little bit of notoriety changes a lot of just the way. Even if you don't change, the interactions with you change. Yeah, and so people will notice. Hey, flashy car Bill Gates is driving, or why is Bill Gates driving a Toyota, you know? And even if he picks some sensible thing in the middle, it's still going to be like, huh, Bill Gates drives a Volvo. I mean, yeah, there's no win for Bill Gates. Kurt Kurt Cobain bought a fancy car when he first got rich, and I don't remember what it was, some kind of fancy car. And uh, and he got mocked for it by by his cool punk rock friends. I think Courtney Love mocked him for it. And he went and bought a Volvo, traded it in, got a Volvo, because... It was just nice enough that he didn't feel like he was still driving a, a Ford Econoline, line, but it would it wouldn't stand out. He could he could pull up somewhere and not get, get not generate snark. We are thinking of replacing our minivan finally because the kids are finally aging out of the age where we have to drive this awful Honda minivan. Yeah, and your minivan is exactly the one you would have picked if you hadn't been famous. Maybe I would have got the Toyota if I hadn't been famous. But you got the Honda up, instead? Up, upgraded to the Odyssey <laughs> with that sweet, sweet game show money. But we're, we're, you know, we're looking for cars with Dylan, who, of course, with the eye of a 17-year-old boy is like... Maserati. Yeah. No, really, it's like, no, no, no. Like, we, like he's, he knows what he can maybe get away with. He's like, what if we get the Audi, but we get it with the moonroof? Or, you know, like, right, he's, right. he's got these little Dad, signifiers of, of prestige in his head. And we're just like, I don't know. Do we want the BMW? Is he trying to convince you to get the S model? You know, when I was a kid, I was very conscious of the model of Audi that was high performance. <laughs> and so the the S, generally those high performance cars are for nerds only. They, you know, they 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 put 30% more horsepower in it and charge you 60% more money to I drive l- around with a red S on the I back. like when it has a different like accessories package, but th- that's got some branded name, you know, like oh, right. this is the, the Levi's package. Exactly. <laughs> my dad had, my, my dad got his first SUV. It was the Eddie Bauer version yes. of the Ford Explorer. I remember that. And he was very sold on that. <laughs> I don't even know what it had, uh, leather interior or something. What did I see? There was like a Burberry branded Land Rover, maybe, or Range Rover? That, that makes sense. And it just felt like, ugh, wow. I mean, that's an $80,000 upgrade or something. Ken, you've got a lot of irons in the fire right now. You've got, um, as a result of your of your Jeopardy goat winnings, you've been asked to chair a Senate subcommittee. You've, uh, you've been given the reins of a network. I am the heir to the throne of France. So how are you managing all these multiple teams that you presumably have? You know, typically here in uh, Omnibus, you just wheel your whiteboard out and explain to me all the things that are, that I should do to change my life. How are you going to do that with a far-flung team? I'm flying a lot less and doing a lot more virtually now, like I think we all are. Yeah. And a great option for this that I just found out about is Miro. Miro, M-I-R-O, Miro. Yeah, it's a way of uh, managing collaboration when remote working is involved. It's it's essentially an online whiteboard, a big digital canvas on which you can drag everything related to your projects and bring your team together. Here's all your documents. Here's everything from your Google Drive, your Dropbox, your Slack, or whatever. It's all in one place, and that's essentially your new team office. Now, you and I have, for 
since the very beginning, and I'm talking about back to the 1970s, we've been advocates of a paperless office. We've been advocates yeah. of... I was talking about that so much in the 1970s. I know, paperless office. We were ahead of our time. People are like, Ken, you're in kindergarten. Shut up. Ken, Ken, all we have is paper now. <laughs> but uh, but this seems, I mean, now in in a post-corona uh, environment, working from home has, it's demonstrated that it's that it's a better way of doing business for a lot of people. It was just inertia that was keeping us in this dumb cubicle world. But now we need a set of new tools to start to to really, you know, like transition to a new way of doing business. I think Miro really is it. Over 5 million users worldwide trust Miro to help their teams work more efficiently. You can start using Miro for free by signing up for an account. So you're saying I don't even have to like throw money in uh, to to test this out. There's a there's a free option at miro.com/omnibus. That's m i r o.com/omnibus. Sign up for a free account today. Well, uh, so what's the limitation? I know that you can't, you know, it's like two like two team members, three team members. What's your favorite kind of toppings at a topping bar? Unlimited. That is the number of team members you would get. That's why I go to Mongolian barbecues. That's Miro.com slash Omnibus. Fabric has always communicated luxury all the way back to ancient times. Probably more so then. Uh, I mean, there were fabrics that were reserved for... Uh, for royalty. By law or just by yeah, by the necessities I, of how the economy works. I mean, I wonder by law, right? Uh, it, Royal mean, cer- purple. Cer- certainly purple and certain dyes were um, were reserved. But also, I mean, in Roman times, the material the, of your toga communicated status. And, you know, everyone wore a toga. But depending on whether it was cotton or linen, depending on whether it was wool or silk, you know, you could you could I demonstrate think, your wealth. I think there actually was some purple edging that people could wear back then. You know, a certain kind of toga that showed rank or privilege. Yeah, well, and the the stitching on on your toga. If everyone's wearing the same garment, you know, how are you going to distinguish yourself? That's the problem. But think about the golden fleece. I mean, to I mean by the. Uh, even in the era of Homer, the the story of the Golden Fleece was already an an old story. Um, the idea, and it's what it's it's a sheepskin, a sheepskin, but it's fancy. It's super fancy. It's and it's a it's an impossible quest, right? Or or uh, the quest for the Golden Fleece. It's the fanciest the thing they could think of in you know dung encrusted. <laughs> classical times what if there was a sheepskin but it was kind of shiny boy i would sail for weeks if there was a sheepskin that was a little bit shiny i'll tell you what it goes i'm sure back to the very first garment that people put on when they found uh what was his name etzel etzel who's the who's the uh the austrian guy that they found in a glacier oh uh uh, otzi otzi or something when they found him uh we all what what was it we There's, should find out. Is there a thing over the O? Is it Utsi with an Utsi. umlaut? Yeah, I think it's Utsi with an umlaut. When they found Utsi, his handmade leather shoes that were stuffed with straw, uh, that was all, re- I mean, his garments were remarked upon by the archaeologists as symbols of his status. And now Nike makes those. They make <laughs> them. I'm going to get the air Utsis. <laughs> Stuff with the with the shock absorbing straw that keeps you warm in winter. A lot of it summer. must have been. There's not a lot of uh, 
things you could spend disposable income on then. Well, and cars having not been invented and... Making a garment, weaving it, is extraordinarily labor-intensive. If you think about how difficult it is just even, you know, using the loom and a spinning wheel to take a big undifferentiated mass of sheep's wool and uh, to card all the dung out of it and wash it multiple times and dye it and spin it into thread and then weave it. Mindy is crocheting an afghan right now. And, you know, it's just a bunch of balls of yarn she got from a fabric store. She didn't have to card dung out of anything. In fact, she does very little dung carding. Is that right? Well, talk about privilege. She should check that privilege right now. Like many modern American homemakers, she's gotten devices that help her with her dung carding. Yeah. But, you know, efficiency. But she's going to spend, I just see her spending dozens, if not hundreds of hours on making a single Afghan. And it really makes you think, I mean, I'm, I'm sure automation helps, but also the fact that we're able to ignore the kinds of developing world workers and factories that produce a lot of our inexpensive garments. She doesn't need to make it either. You're all yes. You're all well clothed. She's not knitting this if in this order to Afghan survive. If this Afghan did not exist, I'm sure we could find some other weird purple and green thing to put on the back of the couch. But when you think about silk and the degree to which silk, I mean, the, the process of making silk initially... Um, wild silk involved taking cocoons and boiling them and take uh, taking the you know the tiny little thread that came out of a bug's butt yeah yeah plus all the vermiculture stuff you know like what do they eat what do they thrive how right. many mulberry trees do we need to 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 harvest wild silk you would have to you know you pull the cocoon down and cut the bug out of it and and what that does of course is remove is is shorten those threads and then you have to cut time together and 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 weave a single strand you retie all the little threads it's so much work now uh or, or in industrial silk making uh part of the reason they boil it they kill the bug and then they can unwind the cocoon and and pull a, a single strand, a, a, you know, an incredibly long single thread by unwinding a cocoon. And is that one Chinese man doing that, or is that machines now? I think probably there are machines involved, but but traditionally, anciently, and then try and weave enough of, try and collect enough of those, let alone weave them together to make a garment. Um, so the luxury, the luxury of it is not just that it is durable and beautiful, but also hundreds, thousands of hours of work just to produce the fabric before you've even made the the, the outfit. And in pre-industrial times, the fact that it came across a continent yeah. to get to you it's it's also a sign of your your well-traveled cosmopolitan uh, ethic. So tailoring was was also extremely important. It's like cutting a diamond. As soon as you have a a beautiful sheet of silk, (laughs) you're going to cut this into sleeves. You'd better do a good job. And, um, and so all of those were signifiers of wealth and status, but also, uh, it became, you know, it's an industry, right? Making clothes has always been an industry. There's right now a, uh, or in, in, in recent years, this started, 
uh, and that this is a little bit of a side note, but in the late 1800s, uh, a priest by the name of Jacob Kembore in Madagascar realized that the giant spiders of Madagascar produced this uh, extraordinary silk. And they're, you know, they're the size of the palm of your hand. Oh, well, I don't like that. And so he invented a machine where he would take 24 spiders and the machine actually was like, um, like stocks in a public square where you would, uh, you would. Does it have eight holes instead of two? (laughs) Uh, no, it, because it holds them by their heads. Oh! And he invented this machine that would that he could put these giant spiders on their backs, clamp down their heads. The spiders would become extremely docile. Well, this is awful. This is like Abu Ghraib of spiders. And then he could harvest the silk. They would just sit there on their backs with their little heads in stocks, and squirt out silk. And his machine would. Spin the you know sp- as fast as it could come sp- out of the spider's yes, butt. Yes, pull pull the the silk out of the out of the spider's butt, and then he would take the spiders out of the machine, and they were still fine. He would put them back in the woods, grab twenty four more spiders, and oh, in the it's not like uh, there's not going to be some dairy farm style expose. He's not. It doesn't kill the. He spiders. doesn't condemn them to a life of of silk slavery. People are uh, people have now tried to industrialize this process of Madagascar spider silk. You know, spider silk is, of course, uh, has been investigated by industrial uh, materials people because it's incredibly strong. It has all this tensile strength. It's it's uh, very very fine. Con- considering how fine it is, finer than a human hair, it can withstand. I mean, you walk through spider webs all the time, and. So you know, <laughs> yeah, I do. Like, they're That's awful. my trademark. <laughs> I'm all, you know, me and my me and my neighborhood chums are always going into the ha- old haunted house on the corner. No, I mean, as a Pacific Northwesterner, yes. spiders at the end of the summer. I do the flailing walk through a spider cobweb thing, and you know, all how, September and October. <laughs> you know how awful it is. They don't just break apart, right? They're they're on you. They're on you like a golden fleece all afternoon. I uh, yeah. I, before the invention of synthetics, I think that was the. Uh, the finest thread available was spider silk. And I think they used black widow spider webs for the, for the sites in certain kinds of military right. artillery because nothing else was fine enough to, to, to make a target, to make a target in the lens. Uh, and I, th- I think even now material science people are still trying to duplicate um, the, the qualities of, spider silk or or uh moth silk because they you know what 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 ends up the way that those are produced is that they come out as a liquid yeah and then the abdomen of the creature somehow forms it into a solid it's got a spinneret that's kind of compressing it so the molecules form a fiber yeah but how does you how do you teach your butt to do that i've, I've tried for hours well i know i mean how do you even teach how could you get your nose to do it i mean i would have any part of my body that could spin my ears seem to be starting to spin <laughs> <laughs> very delicate fibers as i get older yeah now that i can't go to the barbershop anymore uh yeah my nose hair problems are is uh I don't like the fact that it's a goop because it means Tobey Maguire in the Spider-Man movies is just secreting white goop out of his. Yeah, out well, of his it was pr- white putatively teenage body. It was white goop 
before he sent it out through his little mechanical spinner device, his shooter device. Uh, in the movies, he doesn't have a mechanical one. Oh, right. Like, it just comes out of his body. Yeah, he can just shoot it out of his wrists. Huh. That's why we don't teenage like that. boy goop. I like the parts of Ugh. the Spider Verse that have mechanical ones, right, not right, teenage right. boy goop. A lot of garments, you know, one of the one of the um, one of the most ancient garments is a garment called bark cloth, which is literally that. It's like a tree uh, bark. You take you take the bark off a tree, and and you can think of if you peel bark off a tree, a kind of fibrous inner coating. Yeah. Um, bark cloth is actually not woven initially, not woven, but but really the fibrous interior of bark just hammered and soaked in sort of various natural acids to create a, a malleable cloth. Uh, a tailorable cloth made out of sheets of of hammered bark. Bark cloth became a, a woven fabric, and in, during the mid-century modern period, a lot of home fabrics were described as bark cloth because they were you know, rough, woven, rough woven from cotton, resembling the kind of thick, nubby bark cloth. But one of the great, one of the, you know, the, the, the way the Japanese government supports ancient arts. Yeah. One of the, the, um, recognized sort of historical cultural art forms in China is a weaving of banana cloth, um, from the peels, from peels, from the peels of the banana. It's called the, the Ito Basho banana and they're, you know, they're, uh, they're native to Okinawa and um, they create, and it's a, you know, it's a very rare fabric there woven from the, the, the fibers in the fibers peel. in like the those peel little of the stringy banana. things you don't like to wind up on your banana. <laughs> yeah. But Every I'll, time I get one of those, I'm not, I'm never like, Ooh, like what about, what about a hoodie made of these? But, 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 um, but derive really from the, from deeper in the peel and it goes through this whole process. And it's, it's one of the reasons it's one of these cultural Japanese sort of cultural, um, art forms because the, just the process of turning banana into weavable fibers is a whole, like, you know, passed down from generations art form. But if if the Japanese government's going to support either that or the whale harvesting thing, I would rather they do the banana, the banana harvesting thing, even if it just makes very slippery clothes. But one of the one of the word the the word that the ancients had for their finest linen garments is a word called byssus, b y s s u s. Byssus. I'm taking notes. I've never heard the word byssus. And byssus is a word to describe. Um, it, it it appears in the Bible. It appears in ancient Egypt. It's uh, the word is actually on the Rosetta Stone. Because byssus was a fabric that uh, that denoted royalty, it's uh, it's uh, the word that described the linen that they wrapped the mummies in. It was um, uh, byssus was kind of a a word that was used for centuries and millennia to denote this very very fine linen fabric and it's any kind of linen or it's a specific thing uh well the ancient record is super unclear because the word is used 
sort of universally, and it's translated into various different languages, but not uh, it, not connected to any particular recipe for it. It was widely known to be the finest linen, and I think even now, super fine linen uh, commands like a tremendous premium on the in the fabric universe. Yeah, looking at the biblical citations, it seems like most trans some translations say bissus. Most of them just say fine linen or, or finely twined linen. Yeah, and the and uh, the problem is that bissus over time was used to describe the finest fabric, whatever and, it was. Yeah, and so well, the finest sort of linen based fabric or silk, and so the definition sort of depends on where you're where you decide to put your pointer um what it meant to the ancient egyptians and what it meant to the tailors of the 17th century they may they may be describing an unrelated fabric um but at some point along the way bissus became uh uh, Bissus was the word used to describe a very special fabric that is woven from the secretion of, of, of a large muscle called the pen shell muscle. Muscle like, like clam. S-S-E-L, not coming out of Tobey Maguire's wrist muscles. No, but muscle referring to a like giant a uh, bivalve that's native to the Mediterranean. And it was discovered, and, and this is part of the problem, because byssus was, was applied to the fibers created by the muscle in more recent times. But sea silk was described in ancient times as one of the most um, luxurious of all fabrics. And in fact, it was known in China as an imported fabric uh, kind of a reverse product of the Silk Road because it was European only. Because it, uh, the, the the pen muscle is only a, a, a Mediterranean uh, animal, aminal. So the Sea Silk Road goes the other way. The Sea Silk Road went the other way, and in China, in uh, in ancient times or in in you know early modern times, this the product of or this this fabric, Sea Silk amazed and delighted them it was something it was a a reverse silk that that they couldn't account for well i can't get over the fact that it comes out of a bivalve so i mean for some reason we're used to the idea of insects giving us fibers right but you know i've never seen a a a clam that was covered in fiber that's a that's a straight line i guess well in fact you have any muscle that comes out of the ocean uh in its sort of native state will have a little beard the beard yeah Oh. And so what a muscle does is it secretes this fiber in order to connect itself to the sea bottom. And muscles use this uh use this fiber for an awful lot of different purposes. They're so resourceful those little muscles. Well, they really are. This this um this material which is called byssus and that's named after the the linen, not the other way around. Oh, okay. Um, the muscle secretes it as a, and it's it's 
similar to spider silk. I mean, it comes out as a, a fluid. It's a goop. The, the muscle kind of creates a little vacuum on the seafloor, fills it with this goop, and then the goop sort of, um, you know, uh, in interaction with the salt water, forms this adhesive that not only attaches it to the rock, but also they can, by lengthening and shortening the fibers, a muscle can actually kind of crawl along a rock they use it as a defensive weapon. They use it um, as a weapon. Well, you know, if they're being, because there are muscles, there are um, bivalves that attack other bivalves. They seem so chill, like they in do. The, on a on a restaurant on a bed of crushed ice. So if you are a if you are a group of muscles, and also they use them to attach to one another and create colonies, but you can muscle shoals. Uh, well, they've got the swampers. <laughs> they've been known to pick a song or two. Uh, so this is this is a a, um, a characteristic of mussels universally. What makes the Mediterranean pen shell mussel different is that they are ginormous. Uh, they average a foot or two in length. They can what? grow as large as four feet tall. <laughs> Do they look like the the kind of the Black Pacific Northwest mussels we uh, see on rocks here? They are long and thin, but mm. they are uh, they attach at one end, so they stick out of the sea bottom like a like a pillar. That's how that's how I see mussels, but they're four feet tall sometimes. Four feet tall can be. I mean, they're generally two feet two feet tall. They're. Um, that would still be very large. It's a very large. If muscle. I saw any bivalve two feet long, I would not be like, eh, I've seen bigger. No, they're they're. Here's what I would say: Wow, they're big and they're extraordinary. And they used to be. They used to range widely over the entire Mediterranean, um, and they produce this byssus, which is. Uh, they produce a lot of it but because they're so big. From the, does it come out of the business end of the muscle? It does. It's bis, it's business end. <laughs> uh, they're so big that they need they produce all this extra beard in order to s- keep solid, attach solid to the ground. And in ancient times, someone figured out that you could shave the business off of a pen shell muscle, and it produced an extremely fine fabric. You don't have to harvest it. You don't have to get it to goop on you. You can actually use the fibers from the beard. You go down and, and you and dive on them. I think maybe in ancient times they would pull the muscle up mm. and kill it uh, and harvest the thread. They were not great stewards of the earth. No, they were not. Uh, as, as time went on, uh, it was understood that you could dive down on these muscles, shave them, and it was a renewable resource, but it took a long time for that, I think, to develop. And the historic record is confusing because people talk about the this incredible fabric made from sea sheep, sea sheep. And this was a this was a sea thing. sheep run. I suspect that the Mediterranean traders uh, described it to the Chinese and the Syrians, or or. Uh, you know, the Sumerians uh, described it as sea w- wool and just in a game of telephone, 
uh, it by be- the time it got to Beijing, yeah, there was this idea that some that in these far off lands in the Mediterranean that there were sheep that lived under the ocean that would come up periodically. I bet they're picturing like a mer sheep. You well, know, it's got a fish tail, and then it's got like the front end. The Chinese did call it uh, mermaid silk <laughs> at one point. There's a lot of conversation about this material because it's incredibly strong, incredibly light. And when treated with lemon juice, which is part of the process of, of um, softening it to weave it, it becomes a golden, shimmering, translucent uh, material that if you weave a garment out of it, it, the garment catches the light of the sun and glows gold like like made of gold thread. Like the golden fleece. Like the golden fleece. Like Mack Weldon undergarment. And there is some, there was, I think for a while, a suggestion that the golden fleece actually represented a garment made out of sea silk. Uh, that's been rebuffed or refuted by, by contemporary science because it seems more likely that it would be a sheep fleece. Not a mer sheep? Rather than a, a mer sheep. I love the fact that it's lemon juice. Lemon juice is part of the... Part it, was probably, it was probably a chef who discovered it. <laughs> like somebody putting a little cocktail sauce on a on a pen muscle. Yeah, and said, oh, Look voila. I have missed one. <laughs> the, uh, the sea silk in the 17th and 18th and 19th century became... Uh, it passed out of ancient times and became a known, it was understood how it's made. It's understood that this is a known quantity and there were attempts to industrialize it or to make it into a viable sort of fashion fabric. Um, you see it, it's, it appears in Jules Verne. There's a, there's the idea that there would be enough of this that you could, create a line of gloves or scarves. It's probably Captain Nemo. He's he's always harvesting undersea stuff. Yeah, there's what there's a character in uh in Nemo's adventures who is garbed in sealskin and byssus. Hmm. Uh but there so there were some garments made. Now we know that the that garments made of sea silk date back uh uh all the way to prehistory. Um, but the oldest garment we have uh, we have in in our human possession is a 14th century hat that was discovered sort of in the area Saint Denis around Paris. There was a. I wonder if it was near the gold hats. It might be. It's an. It is a. It is a gold hat. Would you want a gold hat or a or a mersheep gold a hat? Super. I think I would prefer a mersheep hat. There was one discovered that was that dated to. The fourth century discovered in Hungary in 1912 in an excavation, but uh, but it was lost during World War II, as so many other gold hats were. Uh, so, so although sea silk is a thing we have recorded as a as a um, you know product of human adventure throughout the Mediterranean throughout history, uh, it's very attractive to moths. It's so it's so fine. That although it's strong, it's also, you know, as delicate as silk fabric would be or alpaca wool. You wouldn't expect it to survive rain over the course of 
a thousand years. But people would weave garments out of it? Yep. Dresses and whatnot? Well, jackets? it's so labor-intensive to acquire this uh, enough to weave a, a cloak, for instance, that it was truly reserved for royalty and was was like any any hyper-expensive fabric. Um, expensive even in a time before you would think of economy that way. But in the 19th century... It was briefly a luxury garment. And in fact, in the, in the middle of the 20th century, the Italian fascists thought briefly that they could truly industrialize this harvest and make um, camouflage cloaks for the army or, like, you know, that it was a thing that you could... Did they go to like Lothlorien to get them? <laughs> Did Galadriel give it to them? So the the harvesting and weaving of these uh, of sea silk became a kind of secret code of the the women of co- the coastal Mediterranean. It was a thing that um, that the grandmother taught the mother who taught the daughter. It's like pearl diving or something. yeah, right in in uh, Sardinia and in Sicily and. Greek islands. And you could make good money by like sending this off to Paris? Well, traditionally, this is difficult enough work that it isn't thought of as a money generating craft. That's Um, too bad because there's no business like show business. Oh my God. I would end the show right there, except there's just some little bit more to tell. But so what do you, so then. So it became a thread that was used in vestments. Uh, It it, it was attached. Like for priests? Yeah. There was a religious significance attached to it. It was used for, um, uh, if you were being uh, for baptismal garments for infants, uh, it was perceived to help uh, a young couple in love. Oh, you know, it's like a, it's sexy lingerie. Yeah, well, not lingerie. I mean, <laughs> even just a little, a little bracelet or a little oh, it's tiny like a love token. Yeah, just to make a little, even a little square of this fabric required hundreds and hundreds of hours of diving and shaving these poor muscles and weaving it into a fabric. And it became a, a lost art or lost in almost all of the cultures of the Mediterranean. It survives now only in Sardinia and only among a very small group of older women who all learned it from the same woman, a, a woman by the name of Italio Diana, who taught the only handful of women who are left. Now, one of them is a woman who's, who is sort of a self promoter. Um, her name is Chiara Vigo and she's sort of self proclaimed the last person who knows how to do this. Although there are some, there's a few others. There are some quieter Sardinian women who, who do know how to do it, but their daughters aren't really interested in learning this, uh, this technique because it is a it's a lifestyle it's a lifetime of nobody does it as a hobby yeah you have to go you have to go collect this material and the and the pen shells the pen shell muscles sadly have in recent times they're 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 very susceptible to pollution they they were over harvested for a long time and then just in the last decade uh, they were victims of a of a of a biological 
um, of a of a sickness of a virus of a oh of no a, of a um it's similar to the way that the coral reefs are dying off because it's speculated that it's ocean warming that is making it, the sea more hospitable to pathogens. Um, now the pen shell mussels are critically endangered. And so they're protected by the EU. You can't just go down and you can't harvest probably. You, you can't harvest it. And, and for a long time, this has been a lost art such that, there are now only 60 known items made out of sea silk extant in the world. Wait, really? 60 known items, all of them. That would make it like one of the rarest substances. That's it, like moon rock. It truly is. Uh, in uh, Just a few years ago, uh, Chiara Vigo was offered $3 million for a, you know, a, a square of sea silk that was only a few inches square. By, you guessed it, Elon a, Musk, <laughs> a Japanese businessman. Yeah, right. Any one of these stories always features a Japanese businessman with a very weird fetish. <laughs> and you have no idea who this a uh, Japanese businessman ever is, but he has f- you know four million dollars to offer. He's buying Van Goghs and whatnot, and she refused to sell it wow. because there's some. And she lives a humble life with a coal miner husband. They live on a pension, but. Uh, but she's very invested in this story of sea silk being a kind of spiritual. Uh, she says that sea silk belongs to us all, it's and so of course no one can have it. Connection with the waves or whatever. Right. Uh, but but these sixty, these sixty not even garments, but uh, sixty little extant items of sea silk that exist in the world. She's using them to clean her sink probably. Yeah. None of them available. I think if you, if you're like a young bride and you go over to her house and say, my husband is, you know, sleeping with my best friend, she'll give you a little sea silk wristband. So I don't know if those are counted against the 60 extant items, but she still has a little, she still weaves this. She's, I, I mean, these, these three, Women in Sardinia. For, for a few more years that somebody still knows how to weave this, but it's going to be lost. After that, it will be lost to time after, you know, after millennia. Well, I'm going to act now. I'm going to go to Sardinia and I'm going to buy some business for my missus. And that concludes Sea Silk. Entry 1120.EX3816, certificate number 29379 in the omnibus. Now, hopefully the last three people uh, doing social media in your time are about to pass away. They know the lost art of tweeting. They understand all the joke formats. They know what wrong answers only means, or uh, uh, you can only pick three. All this knowledge is about to be lost, and you should applaud that. But in our day, uh, we were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on social media, jointly at Omnibus Project. Uh, if somehow you have access to uh, early 21st century social media platforms, make sure to follow all those accounts. You won't regret it. You could, if you have sea silk. Oh yeah, if you have sea silk to barter, please send that to PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. I just got in the mail. What did we get? Oh, we got uh, a bunch of Lake Washington cars and coffee stickers. Oh, how nice! You must have mentioned their outfit on the. Oh, we know where uh, ep- the coppicing episode, timestamp nine eleven. Hmm. 
So I guess these guys did 9-11. Never forget. <laughs> never forget Lake Washington Cars and Coffee. I've never actually gone to a Lake Washington Cars and Coffee, but I think I follow them on Instagram. I'm very, I'm, I'm always happy to see uh, their eclectic selection of cars. And and possibly coffee. Never had or do, coffee. Or do they just either. have one kind of drip coffee? It seems like they meet really far away from anywhere that would have coffee, so... They're either shipping it in or you're meant to bring it yourself. These, it says these are stickers for the Omnibus LLV mail truck. Hmm. And we also got, uh, let's see, Pat sent us two stickers that... We're getting a bunch of stickers here. He or she made. We still have some Toasty Cake stickers. Now we have some Lake Washington Cars and Coffee stickers. These homemade stickers have both of her slogans in life. This one says, hydrate or die. Sure. And then her other hard to, hard to refute that. And her the other word she lives by apparently, or he, full power to the void. Hmm. Which, Is that a Star Trek reference? Pat says it comes from a random dude that Pat met at a bar while waiting for his or her roommate's band to load out. We had an intense personal conversation for five minutes. Then he had me go outside with him, join hands, raise our fists to the sky, and scream, "Full power to the void." Huh. Then he disappeared around the corner. Full power to the bavoid? <laughs> yeah. That's, it's got a silent B, I think. Uh, an invisible B. It's, got a, yeah, it's, it's not, not silent. silent. <laughs> it's got a spoken but invisible B. Where do you put it? Is it Vobid? Hard to say. Uh, so, yeah. So, those are uh, Pat's two slogans, and Pat passed those along to us. Uh, thank you. So, so, yeah. Send us your sea silk. We'll settle for stickers in a pinch. Uh, you can send if you have virtual communication to send us those can m- much more convenient to send to the omnibus project at gmail.com although we do want to support the post office which is having a rough year yeah so mail it just mail ran <laughs> print out your email put a forever stamp on it and send it to p.o box 55744 shoreline washington 98155 you can uh, collaborate with fellow sea silk enthusiasts at the futurelings facebook group post pictures of all your uh, crocheting projects uh, and oh, there's similarly a subreddit and uh, some kind of Discord. Yeah. Which is called Gary's Van. That must be a Roderick on the Line reference. That's a different thing. Gary's Van is a is a um, a fan group. But that's the name of the Discord that is often recommended to people looking for the Omnibus Discord. Oh, is that right? Oh, I didn't I realize guess. that. Uh, the future links are where you find Omnibus-related content. There is a group called Gary's Van, which is more focused on my wit and wisdom if you're I don't I'm not crazy about that show. If you'd like to take Ken out of the equation and if you're somebody that's really looking for more just Roderick. Do a, just do a home edit of Omnibus <laughs> where John will say something and there's a long pause and then he will be unhappy about whatever. No 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 was a said. short pause. It doesn't need to be long. <laughs> I would like to hear fan edits of this show without one of us. Like you know when people take Garfield strips <laughs> And edit out Garfield, so it's just yeah. John talking Omnibus to no one. Omnibus without John. Yeah. <laughs> Omnibus minus one. And then you could do the parts at home. You could be like, well, if I was Ken, what would I, what kind of smart alecky thing would I say? Well, here? you know, if we did it, if they did, if they did two versions without John and without Ken, <laughs> the ones with, with mine would be, I would say something and then there would be a pause and I would go, yes, exactly. That's right. And then I would talk some more. Whereas the ones with you, you would talk for a while and then you would go, hmm. No, not really. And then you would talk some more. Uh, I think the because ones, you're more of a nigger. No, I think the ones without you, there would just be longer pauses. <laughs> this is, is this still playing? It's been four minutes. <laughs> uh, if you would like to contribute to the show financially, and you know, and that would give us 
some some capital to market this amazing new half omnibus project we're considering. Well, that and also we could put Ken into some nice garments. That's right. Like yeah. we need uh, we need three million dollars. We know that Kiara will not take three million. So we're hoping to raise three million and one dollars. Ken and I could go and and say we're having problems in our relationship. Will you please mend it with a sea silk belt? John and I want COVID face masks made of sea silk. Sea silk. Sea silk. Sea silk. It's sea that's, salt. That's the polio vaccine <laughs> <laughs> made made from this fabric. That's what happens when you put sea salt on your sea silk. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we're trying to raise three million and one dollars for our new COVID face masks. If you would like to help contribute to this important cause, uh, all donations are accepted at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Thank you in advance. Fusionlings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived or whether the hoodies made out of Tibetan yak will be as valuable as sea silk in your time. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.